I'm Jane Wilcox, and you're listening to Shakesiology, Girls Talking Church. Tell your girls a story, I won't tell you a lie. Anything you want, you can do it just fine. Come on. So every year in various forms, we typically take a moment to take stock of anything that we've invested ourselves, our time, our energy into, and especially our resources. It is December, 2022, as we're recording this, and I thought it would be a good time to do an episode on the state of the church as we head into a new year. Our listeners, of course, will hear this in 2023 when it's scheduled to be published. There are two questions I hope to poke at. One is the question of how our churches, as well as our denominations, are responding to some of the changes we are experiencing and that we'll be talking about tonight, such as the decline in attendance, as well as concerns about our use of power that has become part of the conversation that we have about church in the U.S. today. Pastoral credibility, that's tanking. I'm going to look at some of the statistics and certainly the disinterest of the younger generations to maintain an institutional church and to really invest in those resources. The second issue I wanna look at is to prioritize the most pressing issues facing the church today. That's part of our purpose as a podcast to bring to light some of those pressing questions. And as a church, what do we need to keep our eyes on? I'm here today with the SHE team. Besides myself, Ecclesiology is? Kim Hu. Jennifer Johnson. Chris Ann Swartley. I'm going to read an excerpt from Diana Butler Bass's Christianity After Religion. After I read it, I'm going to tell you what the copyright on the book is, just for perspective. So here goes. She says, For more than two decades, theologians, historians, and social scientists have been noting unanticipated shifts in religious life and discussing the end of Christendom, and the emergence of post-Christian Western culture. Most of the work has focused on Europe and Great Britain, intellectually hedging their bets with vague appeals to American exceptionalism, saying things like, quote, the United States does not quite fit the religious pattern of, of other Western nations, unquote. Since the mid-1990s, however, observers of contemporary religion have increasingly argued that Christian belief and practice are eroding even in the United States. Traditional forms of faith are being replaced by a plethora of new spiritual, ethical, and non-religious choices. If it is not the end of religion, it certainly seems to be the end of what was conventionally understood to be American religion. The process of leaving religion, one that started three or four decades ago, seems to have reached a tipping point. We have most likely come to the end of the beginning of the great transformation of faith. What was is no longer, and as a result, discontent, doubt, disillusionment, and for some, despair are the themes of the day. Diana Butler Bass published this book in 2012, a decade ago. There's a lot that's happened in our world (laughs) over the last five years alone. She is collecting the data and the voices of those that were already looking at declines in Christianity, and as she paraphrased it, the end of Christendom, even a decade ago, and decades trending in that way already. 
So here's the question. Given the data that we've read through in various formats, given the data forecasting the future of Christianity and the church in the U.S. over the last year, and also religion in general over the last decade or more, how do we see denominations and churches responding to these major shifts? Does it feel like we're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic? How much or how little are we seeing churches change in a strategic way? And maybe we're not. Maybe we are doing what we can, doing the best we can, as Jen would say. (laughs) I think that we are coming face to face with our own failures in some ways. Mm -hmm. I don't think the problem is with the church of Jesus. I don't believe that the gates of hell will ever prevail against Mm -hmm. the church. The people of God united in the mission of God will never go away. I think the problem is we have not created a compelling vision of what Mm -hmm. that church is about or what the kingdom of God is about. And so it's no surprise to me that people aren't being drawn to what we're trying to put out there. Um, And we saw that in several of the things that we read about people uh, don't find the church relevant. They see us as known for what we're against. Well, we haven't painted a compelling picture of what we're for in many cases. Um, And so I I think that there's a chance to really do something new and to turn that, or turn the ship around if we want to yeah. go back to our original metaphor, but it's definitely not going to be by just trying to do a coat drive or um, do a VBS program. Our own people are going to have to rediscover the mission and the kingdom of God. And then we're going to have to find a way to, nothing's more compelling than Jesus. <laughs> we're just really bad at taking a radical message of Jesus into our culture. Yeah, yeah. I was going to agree with Jen. I feel like the spirit of the ship is prevailing because Jesus prevails, but the mechanics and the modes and the methods need some reworking and mm-hmm. rethinking. When I was sitting in on your world Christian history class, Jane, at one point you were describing how the Catholic church was moving at the time of Vatican II versus the Protestant church and describing the Catholic church as a ginormous mm-hmm. aircraft carrier kind of ship. And it is much more difficult to turn around a ship of that magnitude. Um, I have kept that and I, I've used it yeah. a lot to explain like how and why church changes or how it doesn't change because of the size of the entity. So if anything, I see that maybe what we're realizing now is that if the Titanic is a metaphor for like the big majority Christendom culture that we are used to, maybe this is not the boat or the mode or the method that we need to reach like those inlets Mm -hmm. and smaller rivers, right? Like you don't take an ocean cruiser like down the Mississippi or, you know, down like the Schuylkill in Philadelphia. You just don't do that. (laughs) That's not appropriate place for that boat perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think we need to like retool or think about what are the best modes and methods to reach the places that need reaching most. And Mm -hmm. maybe that is not, you know, the great and mighty Titanic. Yeah, I think that if the Titanic is the big institutions, then I think, yeah, we're probably just, if we're trying to save institutions, then we're probably trying to rearrange the chairs on the deck. But if we're, if we're serious about, and I hesitate to say this because we are not the ones who quote, save the church, (laughs) but, (laughs) but if, if we are trying to save some form of regular gathering for the worship and mission of God, then yeah, I think I think we can do it with some imagination and risk-taking and some courage. But if the Titanic is the big institutions and organizations, 
it, it might be time to say, let's jump ship. But to run with the imagery that Kim brought up that I started in a church <laughs> history class is the image of an aircraft carrier that needs about seven miles to make a U-turn. It is built to make a U-turn in a mile. But what happens because of its width and breadth, when that aircraft carrier needs to make such a sharp turn in a mile, the deck goes at an angle like this, like 45 degrees. And if it's not locked down, whatever it is that's sitting on the deck, it's going into the ocean if it tries to change that quickly. So the question is, as we experience the rumblings of this change, what needs to be locked down? And I, I think, Jen, you, you've already, you named it. So Jesus isn't going anywhere. The church <laughs> isn't going anywhere. Christianity isn't going anywhere. Christendom, all those relics that sat on the deck slid off. They're gone. They're in the ocean. <laughs> it, it might go all the way back to when, when Christianity became, quote, the official religion of Rome. Yeah, we're always better when we're the underdogs and we don't mm. have a lot of power or control or money. True. The reference that Diana Butler Bass made was to the end of Christendom. And so we are feeling now, as, as uh, Barbara Brown Taylor would say, the church in ruins. So we're looking around at this large empire, Christian empire, that has created Western society. And the church, I think, to some extent, is scrambling because now there is no longer the parallel society between church and world, but there's this large gap. I feel like we are continuing to crawl out of Christendom while we still have these structures in place. They are weak. It may be scaffolding to, to some extent. And by the way, Barbara Rand Taylor uh, named the church in ruins in one of her earlier books, I think, out of the 90s. Back to Diana Butler Bass, she talks about a tipping point 10 years ago, or maybe the nails in the coffin was, was COVID, that really brought to fruition many of these issues. And we are at the end of Christendom at this point. I mean, that might be an overstatement because there's still a lot of vestiges of Christendom in our society. But for the younger generations, they're not having it at all. They're not having that, but they, I think, will still have Jesus. So <laughs> the question becomes, how do we continue to be Jesus followers, followers of the way, as it says in the New Testament, without all the junk are we talking about the mm. institutions? Are we talking yeah. about cultural Christianity? Are we talking about, we get all of our holidays off, but Muslim, Buddhist, or Jewish, they don't get theirs off. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like that, I think can go away, but following the incarnate God, I don't think is going to go away. One of the things I would want to lock down would be the development of Christian character. Mm. Like part of me doesn't care how that gets done. If it's a house church with no band, but they're just reading scripture and trying to follow Jesus, to me, that that's what I would want to lock down. And I'm not sure all that Barna research, I mean, maybe, maybe there was one part of one article where they did address like that spiritual formation was important to mm. people, but like, I, I want to know more how people are actually living rather than 
do they self-identify as Christian? Because you can say, I'm a believer in Jesus and live however you want. I think we're talking about the fruits of the spirit. So it's how are we letting the Holy Spirit actually um, shape us? And then we're talking about discipleship. How are we walking in community with other believers and how is that shaping us and helping us to grow up? And I think part of what the last few years has revealed is that an awful lot of people are spiritual infants. Mm -hmm. And the first time you, you give them something slightly difficult or you threaten a worldview in any way, they go ballistic. Yep. This is what I'm Um, saying. So what do we do with that? Right. I actually found that statistic fascinating um, that what was it? 48% of people felt like their churches were strong in spiritual formation. I'm like, well, I don't know a lot of you. <laughs> you're not, you're not the Walmart I'm going to, you know what I'm saying? Facts. Um, like good for you. I'm glad you feel that way. We may have slightly different definitions, you know what I'm saying? So like, that's what I think. That's what I, it's one of the things I think we have to hold on to. I think along with like character, what's staying glued to the deck it feels really basic, but I think in some ways we have to go back to what is Jesus for? Um, because mm. it's clear that some people think that they believe what Jesus is for. And then we see like cars flip buildings on fire and we're like, ah, not exactly what we all had in mind. I'm My church is going through the book of Mark for most of the year. Um, and half of Mark is just people of Jesus revealing himself and then being confused and him telling them like, don't tell anyone, right? There's like this big, the big messianic secret of Jesus. But we recently did Mark eight and it was hilarious because it's Jesus feeding the 4,000 and then the Pharisees are upset later. uh, And then there's more confusion, but I'm like, it's so interesting that the Pharisees want to see a sign, even though Jesus just fed 4,000 people. um, And it's like clear, like that wasn't good enough. Like this I, I mean this with all respect, like picnic Jesus, like the Jesus that was hanging out for three days with people and fed for like multitudes, like picnic Jesus <laughs> is not the Jesus the Pharisees wanted. And that's why they were upset. And so it's, so it's two sides of it, right? You see like people earnestly yearning for Messiah, right? And like, that's great. But the problem is it was right earnestness, like wrong desire of the wrong outcome. And so... I, it sounds so basic, but I'm like, oh, when we say we want people to know Jesus, and I'm like, what part of Jesus do we yeah. want them to know? And can our church clearly communicate that to other people and invite them on the green grass to hear Jesus and have mm. tuna sandwiches? Can we do that? <laughs> Picnic Jesus. We've got new yeah, hashtag. that's good. <laughs> that's our next t-shirt. Picnic, Picnic Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> I'm down for Picnic Jesus. I keep this quote next to my desk that I've found when I was doing my dissertation. Roger Haight wrote it in 2014. He says this, Today, as if we are seeing Christianity anew from a different vantage point against the massive background of history and innumerable other religions, all Christians begin to look alike in their essentials. Are we there already? I wonder if we're going to get to the point where there's so few believers left that we're just grateful to know others. It doesn't matter what stripe you are. We're just grateful <laughs> there's somebody else who follows Jesus nearby. Not yet, but I okay. I think we could get there. I mean, well, I'm talking about, I live in Tennessee. I shouldn't speak for you all, but here, I mean, y'all. I, can't, I can't throw a sweet tea without hitting another person right, who right, claims right. to be a Christian, right? <laughs> but I think, you know, if we get to a place where there's a church for every 4,000 people, we might be really glad to know a few other people who follow Jesus. It may not matter so much what 
denomination they're part of or how they were dunked or not dunked or whatever. Yeah, we're probably not there yet, but. But we sure do want to keep arguing about what counts as essentials. Yes, we do. I don't even think we'd call that essential, like forms of baptism. Depends on what group you're from. <laughs> this is true. My group would. <laughs> My group would. I'm not so sure that we would call the forms of baptism or the need to rebaptize as essential in terms of Christianity, but it has become an essential for an denominational identity. And that oh. has become the, the idol, right? We're hanging on to these distinctives um, <laughs> while Christianity burns over in the corner. <laughs> Overstatement, overstatement for sure. But it is about those denominational distinctives or denominational exceptionalism that makes us distinct or special from other denominations. That was a reality for centuries. It's how we distinguished ourselves. Denominational exceptionalism needs to slide off into the ocean. That needs to go. One of the statistics from Barna Research was that 41% say the church is known for the things that they are against. The quote from that article was, when the unchurched believe the church to be against them, they will struggle to see themselves as a participant. Because to feel like that the church is for you means that you fit, quote, nicely into the ethos of a community. When you're a part of the community, part of what's going on, you're also connected to the needs. There's this large gap between where non-church folks are and how the church is responding to them and reaching out to them. That feels like a monumental reversal to retrieve your disreputation to be about things that we are against, which ultimately translate to the people that we are against. I keep getting stuck on how in the world did we get here? that we're known for what we were against instead of what we're for, because I don't see that in the life of Jesus. I don't see that in the new Testament. Uh, what in the world? I find myself wondering how in the world did we get here? I think you could use the same description of the Pharisees. Could you, that they were known by what they were against? Hmm. I mean, I think yeah. we have created a whole bunch of rules about who's in and who's out and what keeps you in and what keeps you out. And, and I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm not talking about the Orthodox <laughs> beliefs of the, you know, the church over 2000 years. I'm talking about all the stuff that we've named before in this podcast, yeah. the way that we have allowed fear and, and the way that we have tried to grasp for power through cultural institutions like politics and the free market, as opposed to just trying to be the organic church. But what gets the attention is the pastors who abuse women and children or, or just their power in general, the legal battles, the, the political battles. And so I'm not surprised at all that that's our reputation because we've cultivated that. So I'm the, um, official cynic and doomsayer of the group, I know. But I mean, I, I think we've made choices to chase the wrong things. And so those outside of the church are very rightly calling us on that, on what we have been chasing. So I have an exercise I do with my team here at, at the university with our marketing team. And we ask ourselves two questions. We say, what questions are we answering that nobody's asking? Mm -hmm. 
And what questions are people asking that we're not answering? What are we yammering on about that nobody's even mm-hmm. interested in? And not, I don't mean like, again, I'm not talking about doctrine that we stopped talking about certain core things because they're not like slick and they can't be like a tagline, but I'm saying like, yeah. what are we going on about yeah. that nobody cares about? And then what do people really care about that we're not talking about, but that we actually might have something meaningful to say. Yes. And uh, I'd be really interested really... in where those gaps are. Yeah. It comes to an identity thing, right? Cause there's something in us that is insecure that we feel like, Hey, if it was <laughs> I'm mixing nautical metaphors now, but if like this, sure. like the, if the ship is sinking, right, you have to toss stuff overboard to save your life. What goes overboard? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, what are the non-essentials that we're willing to toss overboard? Um, and I think there's also a question. I don't know if to go down to this level, but are you willing to toss everything off the boat if it mm-hmm. means surviving? Uh, and that is very hard. Oh, right. But it is a possibility, right? The possibility is not zero. Or like Jonah, do you need to be the one to jump ship so that you actually go on mission and people are saved, you know, Nineveh repents and they are saved. And then he's bitter about it, of course, but at least he was willing to say, it's me, send me overboard, you know, and you trust God to keep, keep the mission moving. That's radical. I appreciate that this conversation is happening at the beginning of the year, um, because I think that at an individual level, at least, there is some inventory that needs to be done, I think, for all anyone who says they go to church, anyone who says they're a Christian, mm. I think is great to do some inventory. Yeah. What does it mean when I follow Jesus? What does it mean when I mean that I seek the good of my neighbor, my neighborhood, my community? What does that look like? Uh, in what ways do I see it? And what ways do I see the Holy Spirit moving? Am I obeying the call to partnership and invitation in those ways, Mm. Um, you know, uniquely in my setting, in my context, in my culture, in my community? And to me, I think that's actually very exciting. (laughs) It can be very exciting if we are open to the invitation and opportunity. But, you know, clearing ship, jumping off the boat is is not easy. Mm. I did appreciate Barna one of the Barna articles that talked about new metrics, because I am the squeaky wheel about metrics. We're still counting nickels and noses, though we are getting better. We're, we're starting to add some other layers. I mean, that's important. That's important data, particularly over time, because it tells you something, especially in a year like 2020, what were the pre-2020 post-COVID numbers, church statistics in the US. So that, it is important but there need to be different layers in terms of what what are we measuring for church health and the objectives of being the church so one of the barnacle article barna the barnacles barnacles <laughs> one of the barnacles that need to be removed we are quite nautical these in this episode aren't we the references are rich <laughs> one of the barna articles was a reference to new metrics. One being human flourishing or relational flourishing, which I thought, mm, that's a fun thing to measure. And it's, it's an effective metric. And the other one was church thriving. And if I can just comment, because I think we can go anywhere with what exactly does it mean for a church to thrive? They defined it as um, a thriving church is a church that it's fulfilling its mission to nurture, send and equip disciples. 
So I think those two metrics really help us define what needs to stay on the deck. Mm -hmm. One, that we are flourishing relationally. So 52% of church adults out of 10, they give it a nine to 10 that they are relationally flourishing. Jen did check us. She's not quite sure that she would agree with those high numbers or, or those high assessments. But the fact that they are putting a finger on that sort of metric, I think is helpful. Particularly when we're talking about being the church together, but how we are in relationship to those around us, to our community, to our society, and maybe we can retrieve some of that relationship. And then of course, thriving churches, which is the focus on ultimately on mission, preparing and sending people to be the church outwardly. I think they're worth keeping on the deck. I have a semi-hot take. Yeah. Okay. So to tie into what you just said about um, the thriving, especially relationally, I think it's time to be done with the online church. It was fine during COVID. Yeah. It's not. We are an incarnational faith, which is built around a God who came to be with us and who invited us to break bread and drink wine together and to do all the one another's in the New Testament um, and none of those can be done while you were wearing your snuggle on the couch. <laughs> snuggly. And is this snuggly? Is this snuggly? snuggly? I don't know. I'm proud to say I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I just think, and, and, and what ticks me off about it is, and I, before everybody asks me, I get that there are people who have mobility and disability issues yeah. and can, cannot come to church. And it's a great blessing. I'm not saying we, we forget about those people that they don't matter. My, my own parents are getting older and sometimes it's easier for them to watch online. So I'm not saying those people don't matter, but I'm saying as like, we're going to go all in on online. And what ticks me off about it to finish the thought is that I think some people saw that as the method by which we were going to solve all these problems that we've articulated. And yeah. it is the absolute perfect illustration of moving deck chairs on the Titanic. Like, mm. It, it is not some trendy new method that's going to solve the problem. It's actually yeah. causing it to be much more exacerbated because how are we supposed to spiritually form each other and allow the spirit to work among us if we're not us? Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's time for church leaders to let go of that. Pull the plug. Um, pull the plug. <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't think that the value of it for a small portion of the population, a portion that I dearly love, I don't think the value of it justifies the immense time, energy, and resources that mm. go into it. When I, my suspicion is most of the people participating online are people who have kids that they don't want to wrangle on Sunday morning yeah. or people who don't want to get up on Sunday morning. And we've all been those people, right? Like I'm not sitting in judgment on those people. This past Sunday, I was like, I'm going to church because I'm going to church. It's not because <laughs> I want to go to church, but I was blessed by being there honestly. Yeah. And definitely much more blessed than if I had dialed in on a YouTube channel and kind of half watched and half doom scrolled my phone. Like, it's just not helpful. It's not helpful to the mission. There's my semi hot take. And uh, I will see you all later because apparently I, I probably won't be on the podcast again after all the hate mail we get after <laughs> this one, but <laughs> Okay, so the interesting thing about that is it it is the younger generations that are, by percentage, taking advantage of that opportunity to dial in or to attend either a hybrid version or a fully online version of church. It's lower commitment. It's less time. mm -hmm. I think it's a hard sell to cut it off because what we've seen statistically is 
it bumps attendance numbers because now we're counting the number of online attendees. I am 100% with you, Jen, because if we just go back to our episode about social media and being present to one another and the power of attending to one another in person, yeah, it's going to be a hard sell though. To your point a minute ago, the numbers shouldn't be what we're focused on anyway. Magazines, I now get magazines I've never subscribed to. And the reason is because they can send it to your, I do. I never subscribed to Southern Living, but (laughs) here it is. And I'm able to see. Yeah. I I guess when you drive across the state line, they just like chip you or something. I don't know. But, but honestly, (laughs) the reason the publishing industry does this is because they can boost their numbers and then they can sell Uh. more ads. So it's cheaper for them to send you a magazine you don't want so they can sell more ad space. So numbers, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many people, if none of them are being formed into the image of Jesus, it doesn't matter. I am in spirit with you all in the conversation. (laughs) But you like your online church. But (laughs) I I do, I do believe that. Yes. But my, my butt is I, I would hope that all those people who are watching because they were making a choice of convenience. I mm-hmm. hope that then to move them offline, they're not, they're not smokers who are like need to go cold <laughs> turkey, but hope that they would see like, oh, that the value of being together would be made all the more important to them. And part of that means like you need to like be in bodily form there. Um, I even see people who people come late and people who choose not to sit with everybody else at mm. church. And part of me is like, why? <laughs> You don't get to do it any other time during the week. Just do it now. Like it won't, it's not going to hurt. I promise no one will bite you. Like just, we don't even see people that closely anymore. We meet in a lecture hall style auditorium that seats way more than we have. It has more room than we need. But so I think that is my hope. That is my thing where I would, I would hope, let me, let me phrase it in a slightly positive way. I hope that there becomes a point in our church that we do not need an online option because people mm. are so sold on the value and the beauty of being together in bodily form because worship matters and worship is a corporate matter just as much as it, in, as it is an individual matter. That is my, here is my 2023 hope for the church to basically just phrase what Jen and Jane said, but in a more positive way. So the second question I want to poke at is identifying the issues and raising them to a level of importance in addressing those concerns. In some way, we are disrupting the mindset of business as usual in our churches to acknowledge that things are changing. And if we don't address either how we are doing church or how we are being church in a different way, then ultimately we are just rearranging deck chairs. So that along with we do say that our podcast is striving to address the most pressing questions facing the church today what do we suggest are the top three issues that must be addressed so as to disrupt the business as usual mode of doing church so to get us started i want to read some statistics about the perceived credibility of pastors and quote their trustworthiness as a source of wisdom because i think this was fascinating and And the author in that article wraps it up with what is at the core of that concern. So here's the statistic. When asked if pastors are a credible voice and are a trustworthy source of wisdom, the data showed that, 
Quote, when asked if pastors are a trustworthy source of wisdom, some 57% of Americans in general said that pastors are at least somewhat wise. If you think of it in terms of a scale, they're somewhat wise, uh, 57%. When the data is further broken down, only 23% of all adult Americans agree that pastors are definitely a trustworthy source of wisdom. Among Christians, the figure increases to 31%. So those in our churches would claim pastors are definitely credible voices, but then drops to 4% among non-Christians, which is like, wow, that hurt. Larger shares agree that pastors are somewhat a trustworthy source of wisdom and 40% of Christians uh, agree to this assessment. Here's my take on that as one of my top three concerns that we need to address or at least keep on our radar as the church. We have a credibility issue with our non-Christian neighbors. I mean, there's, there's been a, a lot of issues of abuse and scandal that have come up in the news. And as we've noted in one of our previous episodes, power is at the core of that and how we have been stewards or not good stewards of, of the power that is entrusted to us. So in the book, The Resilient Pastor, Glenn Packiam, suggests that pastors need to examine themselves to see whether the credibility issues the profession is now facing have to do with the way we have stewarded power. And then he goes on to say, if mishandling of power has led us to the loss of credibility, returning to the source and shape of a pastor's authority is the way back home. He goes on to say, I don't mean that we can find a way to return to a central place in our communities, but we can once again become trustworthy people when we discover the source and the shape of our pastoral authority. Without saying, I think he is pointing back to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Who shows us how to be good stewards and to have a power ethic that is biblical. We have, in various traditions, we have lost our way in terms of how we have used our power. And I link it back to Christendom, where for the most part, Christianity stood at the center of, of power in a society. And now that we are less at the power center of society, we are really struggling what to do with, with that loss of power or that influence, if you will. So for me, that's one of my top three. We need to address our use of power and visibly demonstrate that we can be good stewards of the power that's been given to us uh, because it has chipped away the credibility uh, of a pastor's authority or a church's authority as some source of wisdom. What would you identify as one of the top three concerns or issues that's facing the church today that must be addressed? I think for me, it's politics. We need to unhook Christian faith from American politics. Mm. Not that we I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be involved, but I'm saying this identification with the partisan politics, this identification of Christianity with one party of American politics. First of all, it makes the church way too small. The church is not American. Mm. The church is global. The church is universal. And so to, to marry Christianity with partisan politics in America just makes the church too small. And secondly, it hurts our witness because American politics is about holding on to power and wielding power and taking control and putting forth an agenda. And mm. 
when you hold Jesus up to either platform, neither platform conforms to Jesus. So it also sort of kidnaps our faith. For me, that would be high up on the list right there next to the credibility issue that you mentioned, Jane. Yeah, that's good. Jen. So it was interesting to read about these changes in in religious affiliation and the predictions about what that might look like in terms of the, the rising number of nuns or the rising number of people who affiliate with a different faith or who, who check out of Christianity altogether. And what was interesting to me about it was that I also have been reading about changes in the um, ethnic and racial demographics of our country that are coming. And I forget exactly mm. what year it is, but it's like by 2040 or 2050, white Caucasians will still be the plurality, but not the majority, which I find exciting, but many people do not. So my the short answer to your question of um, issues that we must face as a church, it's white supremacy. But I don't mm. mean that just in the sense of everybody needs to stop listening to Kanye, right? I mean it in the sense <laughs> of my fear. Some of that white supremacy is rooted in a fear of a lost mythic past that yeah. was never actually reality. And that was rooted in, in Jim Crow and in racism and in legacies of slavery. And my fear is that we will equate that we will assume a causation where there is maybe correlation at best between a rising number of people who are religiously unaffiliated and a rising number of people whose skin is not white mm -hmm. and that we will yeah. equate the two and that we would become even more racist and we will become even more um, tempted to align our faith with our skin color. The changing demographics of this country may may and will contribute to the changing religious makeup of the country, but they are mm. not cause and effect. And that um, it's actually a beautiful opportunity for the church in America. But my fear is that we will become uh, even more entrenched in trying to defend this lost way of life, yeah. which again comes back to power and that, that will we will conflate that with our faith. I think that's a very real possibility. So we've got to, um, we have got to repent mm from our own racism and we've got to find a way to be a church in an increasingly um, diverse nation. Amen. That was good. Whew, as Kim would say. <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason why we think donut ministry is such a, a funny, not funny thing to say is because Donut ministry is very much a thing that is an easy thing to bake into pre-existing cultures in our church, which is why they come in all sort of, you know, varied forms, you know, croissants, donuts, whatever, have, what have you. It's some sort of thing in church that is easy for us to plug and play. So I think hopefully in the new year, I think the opposite of donut ministry is how are how is the church going out into the community? How is the church going out and showing genuine care for what the community looks like? Um, and you have and I think that starts with knowing who like knowing your community first and foremost. It's like being a good learner of what yeah. that is. That's what the basis of any like good missions endeavor is. It's not that you come in and I have good resources, answers, and I'm going to mm. tell you what's right and what's wrong. It's like, oh, what is the need here? And am I well-suited and called to provide for that in a way that people want? And we can see that and aligning with it so that we can see flourishing in our mm. community. And not every community needs a dozen donuts. Just today, one of our previous partners called and they were asking, hey, are you still available to maybe do tutoring once a week? Um, 
in a different part of the city. And I'm like, man, I would love for that to happen, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah. And, I, and what I mean is we're not quite there yet, not because we don't have the resources, but I don't think we have the vision nor the will mm. yet to do it. And so the community is there. The community is waiting for all types of ministries, not just the donut ministries that are easy for us to offer. Uh, and that takes time and it takes patience and it takes yeah. research. Uh, it means talking to people who do things that are different, like different than you, who do different ministries than you and making those connections and learning more about what's happening. And so I guess for me, learning about community is, is the mm. anti-donut ministry of 2023. <laughs> hey friends, thanks for being a part of our listening community. Check us out on our website at girlstalkingchurch.com. You can also engage the She Team and other listeners by joining our Facebook page at Shaklesiology Podcast Community. See you there.